Previously, on Survived by One, Tom Odell's death sentence was commuted to life without possibility of parole. Survived by One, The Life and Mind of a Family Mass Murderer by Robert E. Hanlon with Thomas V. Odell. Atonement. In 2013, at time of writing, Tom Odell will turn 47. He has spent 28 years in prison, more than half his life. 17 of those years were spent on death row. He has developed a powerful build after years of weight training and basketball. He still wears his hair long, similar to the look he had as a teenager. He keeps his mustache and goatee neatly trimmed. His blue eyes are clear. They tell you that they've seen a lot, a lot they'd like to forget. But they are intelligent and thoughtful eyes. The ability to learn is a freedom he still has, and he's gone to great lengths to exercise that freedom. As a result of the fact that he's spent his entire adult life in maximum security prisons, he's had very few of the interpersonal and social experiences that would enable him to develop into a responsible adult. Despite the increased self-awareness and insight he's gained from the self-exploration required to write this book and the educational opportunities he's pursued within the prison system, he remains a work in progress. Given his history of conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder, combined with the fact that he committed one of the most horrific family mass murders in the United States' history, he will always be a work in progress. Tom's maternal grandmother, Evelyn Eller, died in 2006. He mourned her death for nearly a year. Through correspondence and phone calls, they had become quite close over the years, despite his crimes. He still gets occasional communications from other family members, cousins mainly. His family connections remain very important to him. Twenty-eight years in prison have given him plenty of time to reflect on his life and circumstances. During an interview on Christmas Day 2006, he stated that if he had not spent his entire adult life in prison, Going the way I was going, I'd probably be dead. I'd just be dead. Drug overdose, drinking and driving, being drunk and drowning. You know, something like that. He imagined it would have been a violent death, but nothing involving a crime. He was still uncertain as to what pushed him over the edge that fateful November day in 1985. I made it back to the army and I got pulled back. I made it to Kentucky where I was working at a renovation company and had my own place. I ended up getting pulled back home. Come home, we'll work this out. We want you here. I was always looking for approval. I was always looking for that family that I idealized, but never had. Every time it was offered to me, I took it. It still didn't work out. I still held to that hope, got away, but I kept getting pulled back. I kept allowing myself to be pulled back. I just know I'd had enough. It's like this thing just chose me. I feel like it chose me, not me choosing it. Why this particular action took place, why I chose this day or this particular time, I don't know. Before it was always my mother telling me, you gotta get out. You gotta get out. And this was my father telling me also to leave. And it hurt. My dad was actually taking her side. Maybe that was the one thing that was too much. My dad taking the side with her. He had rarely done that before. He was like my advocate. The quiet one. 
I mean, he let things go on. I had enough, and everybody was adding to the problems. Nobody seemed to want to help. Nobody wanted to solve the problems. It was always solve the problems by violence. And after you got the beating, the problem was still there. It made more problems. It just continues from generation to generation. The abuse, the neglect, the violence. You know, if that's how you're raised, then that's all you're going to know. You think that is the right way to raise your child. You don't know any better, so you pass it on to your children, and they pass it on to their children. I recognize that this is wrong. I'd like to be able to pass on my information, and to be sure the cycle has stopped. That this is how you act. I want someone to be proud to say, that's my dad, and not deny me. He remembers vividly that in the immediate aftermath of the crime, he had difficulty believing that it had actually happened. That was one of the reasons he made his infamous request to phone his father from jail. It was like I was looking at myself, outside looking in. It was me doing everything, but it wasn't me. It was like somebody else, like it really wasn't happening, like a dream or something. I didn't think it was real. I didn't actually think I did what was going on. Not me, because I'm not cut from that cloth. You know, I'm not a naturally violent person. I wasn't a violent person. I got into a few fights, but it was all growing up stuff. I never carried guns or knives. I never did violent crimes. I never did things like that. It didn't hit me until I was in the courtroom. When I was arraigned, I went into the shakes. I don't know if it was because I was scared, but something. I kind of lost it. When he was reading the charges, it finally sunk in just exactly what happened. And that was four or five days later. I just remember sitting there shaking. I couldn't stop shaking and I couldn't walk. I was freaking out and that's when it dawned on me that it really happened. I'm really in jail. I'm really in this orange jumpsuit. I'm really in a courtroom. This is no fantasy land. This is actually real. When it first hit me that I had been arrested and realized what I'd done, I had a reoccurring dream. I was going home and they would come around the corner. They were all sewn up for where they got cut. They wouldn't say anything to me. They would just follow me to my room. Then, as I lay on the bed and without saying anything to me, they would attack me but I would always wake up before they attacked me. When he arrived on death row, I was scared to death, but after he took up residence on death row, they seemed to be more scared of my crime and of me than I was of them, because they had seen me on TV. Tom would discover there was more to coping with life on death row than dealing with the day-to-day -day restrictions and regulations. It would take years for him to confront the real issues that were gnawing away inside him. The moratorium really started making me deal with the bully that was chasing me around. I really could be a better person. It's hard to think about certain things when you're in a hopeless situation. Without hope you have no light. Everything is dark. I didn't want my grandmother to have to put me in the ground too. It took a lot of weight off my shoulders. And it took a lot of weight off of my family's shoulders. They had to carry that burden with me. I decided that I couldn't keep running from what I did. It's always going to be there. 
it's always going to follow me. That bully is always going to follow you, always going to chase you, beat you down, and take all of whatever you got. It takes your emotions, and you gotta say, you're not going to do this to me anymore. You're not going to play a game with me. So you just gotta take the bricks down out of the bully. Look at it, deal with it, say, I did this, analyze it, you take this in, you feel you are comfortable enough that you can deal with this, then you can walk with it. Not just take it, but you got to walk with it. If you feel you can walk with it, then you can take on something else until there is no more bully following you. Now you're just walking, nothing chasing you, you're just walking. You got a wagon with some baggage in it, but you're doing the walking. You're not running, you're walking. Of course, the self-evaluation was hard, but it was also healing. The healing process gave him a new range of emotions to deal with. Remorse? It's not a strong enough word. Remorseful just means you're sorry. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. No person should do this. It's hard living knowing what I've done. It's deeper. It's a constant ache. I started reading books about parasite, and I could see myself in all these different stories. I didn't feel so alone. I could see somebody else did this. Somebody else had been through this. This is just not my case. There are a lot of us, and when I started seeing myself in a lot of the different cases, it made things easier to take. I had more insight. That's why, when I started reading these things, that's why I wrote to you. You know, I said, I read this. Is this really true? That helped me tremendously. Like all those facing life in prison, Tom copes by holding out hope that one day he will be given the opportunity to leave his cell for good. Many books and articles have been written about those who spend their lives behind bars, and there's a consensus about the general character of lifers. Most develop a realistic assessment of their situation, an assessment that reflects a mature sense of coping and adaptation. Prison life is all they have, and so they make the most of it. They adopt the others who share their fate, life imprisonment, as family. They make the most of the opportunities prison life provides to create the most livable and decent life possible. They try to avoid trouble that would lead to them losing the few privileges they have, and they try to use the insight they've gained from their years of incarceration to steer other inmates toward better lives. In this context, Tom Odell has become a model prisoner. In an interview in 2009, he examined the life he made for himself. I've been here for the last six years, following my 17 years on death row at Menard and Pontiac, and a brief stint at Stateville. And I've had a job for over three years. I strip floors, wax floors, make the floors nice and shiny. That's my job, and I'm sure that when I go to another facility, they're going to look at my record and say, okay, he knows how to do floors. Put him on floor care. He also worked as a porter. One of the porter's jobs is to keep peace on the wing. You sweep, mop, dust the floors. You're kind of an intermediary between the bullshit on the wing and the correctional officers. So, if an officer's having a bad day, we all have bad days. He may not want to deal with things. So he may go out into the front hall all day. Or go out into the foyer. I try to resolve everything I can on the wing. He may need something. I get it. I take care of it. If it's something I can take care of, then I talk to him. 
I'll tell him, the dude's got this problem. And he'll either say, tell him this or that, or he'll go do it himself, personally. You know, you just become an intermediary. You kinda cut down bullshit between the inmates and the officer. It keeps the officer off the wing so he ain't yelling at people. He's off the wing and I take care of it. Tom recently earned an associate's degree. He's the first and only former death row inmate among the 167 death row inmates whose sentences were commuted to achieve a college degree. When introduced at his graduation, it was announced, Tom isn't supposed to be with us today because he was supposed to be executed. However, he has nearly exhausted his available educational opportunities. It's a source of frustration that he cannot use his time to improve his mind. Libraries were shut down, you know, to cut staff. It took away a lot of different things. As a result, the inmates stay in their cells most of the time. When you put somebody in a cell more of the time, he or she has more time to think. You don't have a book to read because you can't go to the library. So what is your mind going to do? Your mind's going to dwell in hatred, revenge, bitterness, and depression. In the lower level facilities, like levels 2 to 4, you have access to college education and the libraries are open. You can't just put people in cells and leave them. You've got to get them educated. Educated people make educated decisions. So if you send an educated person back to the world, he's going to make educated decisions and hopefully educated enough that he won't land in the penitentiary again. If he's had enough of this, he'll be able to do whatever he needs to do to sustain his life by legal means. Tom has had 10 different cellmates since he left death row. When I get a new cellie, I'm always the one who's got more time so I've got to explain things to him. He's the one getting educated. You do these things, you don't do those things. And he lives downstairs, and I live upstairs, on the top bunk. I'm up here, and he's down there. We talk every now and then and watch TV. Tom has adopted the go-along-to-get-along philosophy that is characteristic of so many dealing with life in prison. He avoids trouble, but he doesn't hesitate to speak his mind when it comes to encouraging others to stay out of prison for good. I try to talk to some of these kids who make light of being locked up here for six months, and I can't let it slide. The other day, we were talking in political science class about political views. One guy said he didn't believe in the death penalty. He said that he believes a guy should get natural life because he will be tormented for the rest of his life. I'm in this class. He doesn't know I'm in this class. He doesn't know my sentence. Guys who know me were looking at me to set him straight, to challenge him, but I didn't. Instead, I pulled him aside. I didn't want to do it in front of the class. I pulled him aside as we were leaving. I said, you don't think that doing six months here in a penitentiary is suffering? How much time do you think a person must do to suffer? I said, any time you're not out there with your family, Anytime you're locked up in this facility is suffering. What do you consider suffering? He just looked at me like a target. I didn't tell him that I was doing natural life. That wasn't the point. I wanted to know what he considered suffering to be because apparently he's not suffering. If he was, he wouldn't have said that. So the time he's doing is useless. He hasn't learned his lesson. He will be back. You don't understand suffering until you've done it. You have to do time. Each person is different. 
For one person, it may be two years before he says, I can't go back, I can't do it, I have to get my life right. For another guy, it may take 20 years before he finally gets it through his head. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. You know, this is not the life I picked. This is not the life for me. In comes a new guy, and you hear him talking. They talk loud because they want other people to hear them. I'll say, excuse me, young brother, can I ask you a question? Why aren't you out there raising your kids? Why aren't you out there keeping your kids from doing what you've done? What kind of example are you setting for your kids by being in here? They all get quiet. How fun do you think it is to come to prison to find your culture? This is the killer part. Many black men who come to prison investigate the black culture because they have time. How blacks were treated, historically, where they come from. I think that's wonderful. I think everybody should know where they come from. Know your own culture and ancestry. But why do you say that you'll go back out there and sell drugs to the same people that you claim to be a part of? Why do you go back out there and use a gun that you don't know how to shoot and inadvertently kill a child two blocks away? They don't have an answer. How long is it going to take before you finally realize that you can change your life right now, before it's too late? Because you're going to mess around until you end up like me. I'm getting ready to complete 28 years. I've spent 17 of them on death row waiting to die every day. I was there knowing I'm going to die. I'm going to be stretched out on a gurney, in a Jesus Christ pose, in front of strangers. They just look at me like I'm an ass. They don't fully comprehend the different aspects of life, that they could change simply by doing so. I tell them, you don't want to mop that floor? Don't tell me there aren't any jobs out there. You feel the jobs are beneath you. That's all it is. I'll clean that toilet with a smile. I'll mop that floor. I'll shine that damned chrome. I'll do whatever I have to do to get that check, to keep from coming to this penitentiary. There's no job beneath me, but they don't get it. They like that quick, easy money. They like what Jay-Z is doing on TV and try to live his life. But when you come to prison, you're broke. Where's your money now? Where's all that money you had? You were making thousands of dollars every day, but now you can't even afford a TV. You can't even buy a pair of boxers. Where's your money? You're out there for six months making thousands of dollars, and you're locked up for the next 20 years. You better hope that the money is worth 20 years of your life. But when I'm telling them this, they get quiet. I don't know if they start thinking or they feel sorry for me. I hope they start thinking. But there are some guys who just have to be so cool and so tough. They say, I'll keep doing what I do until I die. It's sad. It's really sad. At what point do you say, I don't mind coming back to prison? At what point do you say, alright, prison ain't so bad. I don't like living in a cell with another man and smelling his shit. If that ain't enough reason, what else do you need? You don't know how lucky you are. That makes me very irate because I know they're going to continue to offend. I know this. Most guys who commit crimes like mine, murder, it's like a heat of the moment kind of thing, and it's over. It's spent. Unless you're a true psychopath, it ain't going to happen again. Whereas these drug dealers are habitual offenders. When they go in front of the judge, they come to the joint. How many chances do they get before coming to the joint? You know, on the street, selling dope, possession, manufacture, possession. Okay, you're going to go to the joint now. 
They go to the joint for possession. They get back out. They go back to court. Possession, possession, distribution. You know, I can't see why the courts are sending people to the joint and then letting them go out to offend again instead of letting the people out who are going to try to do better to contribute to society. That's my opinion.